You know, when some people hear the word theologian, they have images that come to mind. Uh, Maybe they think of an old scholar who is up in an ivory tower with large books full of dust. Maybe not the kind of guy that you would want to hang out with. Uh, But what I love is, is that R.C. Sproul actually spoke to this. And he said, you know, when you think about theology and what it means to be a theologian, it's not really a question of who's a theologian and who's not, because everyone is a theologian. A theologian is just somebody who has thoughts about God. So the real question that you have to ask is whether or not you are a good or bad theologian. So all of us here today are to some degree a theologian. Now the question is, what is it that makes a good theologian or a bad theologian? See, I believe that there's a a common theme if you look throughout church history at the way that people come up with bad theologies, and it's this. It's that if you have a bad theology, you are beginning with man and your experiences, and then you're trying to work up to God and make it fit. But good theologians begin with God, and that means they begin with his voice, the scriptures, to understand and see who God is clearly, and then they work down into their experiences and interpret their experiences through the lens of the way that God has taught them to view reality. That's what it looks like to be a good theologian. So I'm just curious this morning, what kind of theologian are you? Are you a good one, or are you a bad one? Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be thinking a lot about this. We're going to be thinking about particularly the God who is both meticulously sovereign. He is in charge. He is Lord of all things. He is king. But he is also pictured in our text as being compassionate, a God who shows pity. And these, these realities actually go hand in hand, and we see a beautiful image of the way that that happens in our text today. Now, the problem is, is that when you look at scholarship and you look at theologians who speak about God, we find that there are many who have worked their theology out in a way that doesn't display that sort of working down from God to us, but instead working from their experiences up to God. And that gets us in dangerous places. In fact, I've told you before of an experience I had of a man that I was reading, John Sanders, who was writing about his open theology, an unhealthy theology. And when he writes about this, he writes about it in a book that is called The God Who Risks. And so the title itself displays a kind of danger in it. But he argues that God can't see the future and is just as surprised by the tragedies of this life as we are. We have a a God who gets surprised a lot. And he thinks that that is going to be encouraging and helpful. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the problems with that. But what I do want to point out is what he describes in the introduction as the experiences that led to this. Uh, He he shares this really deeply personal uh, story where he as a kid came home to find his brother Dick under the wheel of a truck. Sanders says in that moment he prayed, God, why did you kill my brother? And Sanders said tragedies like this led him to create a different model of God that would see God as just as surprised by the various grief-inducing trials and tragedies of this life. That was his answer. Well, if you believe in a God who risks, you will also believe that life can be chalked up to chance, luck, and good fortune. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God of Jonah. See, the Bible doesn't teach good luck, bad luck, tough luck, or the luck of the Irish. That's not the message of the Bible. See, Jonah pictures a God who is intimately involved in the details of life and what theologians have past called the providence of God. 
It's the providence of God. That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. Now, you might say, well, what is the providence of God? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism, written in Germany in 1563, asked that same question and then answered it. And and here's what they said. They said this, and I think it's good. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yet all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Did you catch that? All of these various things, good and bad, come to us through the hand of God, through his providential hand, his fatherly hand. And he means this in a good way. Some of you have had bad dads, but this is speaking of that kind, benevolent, good, gracious father that cares for his children. So we're ramping up, we're wrapping up this week our No Escape series, where we've been talking about God's unrelenting mercy. Uh, This week in the book of Jonah, we find ourselves talking about an escapee's heart. We're looking at Jonah's heart in Jonah 4, 5 to 11. So, so far, we have seen the ever-present hand of God in the life of the prophet Jonah. Now, you'll remember that Jonah prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II, a king who experienced uh, many uh, good years. They were prosperous years. The borders of the nation were growing. They were retaking uh, land that the Syrians had taken from them. Things looked good as far as the economy and as far as geography. But what we find is that Jeroboam's reign was marked by this awe-inspiring reality, that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Seemed like blessings were coming upon them. And yet simultaneously we find that this is a man who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and led his people to do the same just as his fathers before him had done. They led the nation into idolatry. Now that sets the backdrop of God calling Jonah to prophesy against this great city of Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, for the evil deeds that they had done. Now, just two decades after this is written, this same people, the Assyrians, would lead Israel into exile. So many Jews who would have read this would have remembered that this is the wicked people that have just taken our people into exile, and yet, and yet God rescued them just two decades before. And what we see here is is God's invisible hand has been visible to us throughout Jonah as he has been sending him to this people. He has been actively engaged in the life of Jonah, showing him or leading him to where he would have him to be. You'll remember how this transpired. The Lord, in chapter 1, hurled a great wind upon the sea. And you find uh, in Jonah 1.7 that the lot fell on Jonah. No accident. And then the Lord appointed a great fish in Jonah 1.17. God's hand throughout Jonah guides him. But here this morning we see God's providential care on display in an even clearer way as God counsels the heart of this angry prophet. And he gives him an object lesson that comes in the form of God appointing. You'll notice he says this three times. Just like he appointed the fish, he will appoint a plant He will appoint a worm, and then he will appoint a wind. And all of these are meant to teach Jonah a lesson about God and his character and who Jonah is. Now, our big idea is this. If you take notes, you can write this down. It's that our compassionate Savior orchestrates the details of our lives. Our compassionate Savior 
orchestrates the details of our lives. Now we begin first in verse 5 with a question, and that's this. What's Jonah waiting for? What's Jonah waiting for? Now, to help us understand the scene of what's going on, I think timing is important. The way that I understand Jonah is that in chapter 3, God saves Nineveh. In chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, he kind of fast-forwards to the end of the 40 days, that 40-day waiting period where Jonah is wondering what God's going to do. And he sort of shows us the end, gives us a preview of the end, where Jonah is angry because God has forgiven them. Now what I think is happening is he's actually stepping back and he's saying, let me show you a conversation that took place during those 40 days, maybe even at the beginning of those 40 days, as God was dealing with with Jonah's heart throughout this event. And so here's what got Jonah to verses 1 to 4. I think that's what what the author is trying to do. Uh, If not, we have plenty of people in the room who can fix that. But let's go ahead and take it that way. So verses 1 to 4 happened at the end of the 40 days. Verses 5 to 11 flash back to a conversation during those days. And here's what he says in verse 5. Look there with me in Jonah 4, verse 5 again. He says this. He says... Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, God's hand, you'll notice, has been guiding him throughout. And here he finds himself at the edge of the city waiting. But what is he waiting for? Now, there have been some that have tried to picture Jonah is being a better guy than what I think the text is trying to show us he is. Uh, I do believe that we are as bad as Jonah, but, but Jonah's not better than what we see. Uh, Jerome tried to say in the fourth century, this pastor, that what's happening here is, is Jonah's upset because he knows that the salvation of Nineveh will later lead to the destruction of Israel. So it's more really his uh, desire for the salvation of Israel that's motivating his anger. But I don't think that's what we get in the text. In fact, most commentators agree that Jonah's anger clearly centers on God's mercy towards his enemies. He not only wants the salvation of Israel, he wants the destruction of Assyria. And those outside of the covenant promises of God, that people that have not received the beautiful promises of God, the law of God, the promise of the blessings of God, all of those things, those people, he does not want them to experience mercy that ought to be for Israel and Israel alone. See, Jonah didn't simply desire to be saved from Nineveh. He wanted to see them destroyed. Now, verses 1 to 4 provide a glimpse into the future where Jonah's prayer exposed his heart that was angry over God's compassion. So he ran in Jonah 1 because he thought God's impulse would be to show mercy even to Nineveh. But here, we flash back to the start of that 40-day waiting period, and he still hoped to have a front-row seat to a Sodom and Gomorrah remix. He wanted to see the destruction. Now, just think about that. This Jonah, he created a booth or a tent, a home, temporary home to shelter him from the heat of the sun. And for 40 days, he is growing increasingly frustrated, angry over God's mercy and compassion. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. It's kind of like that Bill Murray movie, I don't know if you've seen Groundhog Day, where his character Phil wakes up every day and it's like the same thing. And every day he goes to sleep and he hopes up and he wakes, he wakes up hoping it's going to be different, but it's not. It's like the same thing. And here Jonah every day wakes up and it's the same thing. Great, more mercy, more patience from God. 
I'm ready for judgment to come down. And his heart is growing angrier and angrier. Jonah struggles here, I believe, with what Sinclair Ferguson calls spiritual infantile regression. Spiritual infantile regression. That's where a believer responds to some experience in life where they they seem mature to a certain degree, but the experience leaves them acting much more spiritually immature than what you would expect. Maybe someone who you've seen walk with Christ for many decades and yet something hits and, and, and they're acting a little bit like a child or a teenager, like maybe the child that, that wants a sucker. Maybe you've seen this before. And uh, you offer them a sucker, you offer them 12 suckers, but it's really that 13th flavor that you don't have that they really want. And they're willing to scream, cry, and, and cause all kind of havoc. My kids have never done this, but I've heard. Because they're angry, Right? And they just become like childish. And here we find it's almost as though you have this great prophet of God who has come to proclaim salvation or judgment to these people. And when they are not judged because he does not like them and God has not done what he thinks that he ought to have done, he is angry. See, Jonah knew the character of God as merciful and compassionate. Jonah knew the sovereignty of God that he brought all things to pass. He knew that both of those things were true. And don't miss this. If we begin to judge God's actions in time and space, that's God's providence, based on our experiences, and then we try to work our way from our experiences back up to God, we will become bitter and angry. See, that's true of our blessings, that's true of our losses, and that's true of our trials. All three of those things can make us bitter if we are working from those back up to God rather than beginning with God and working our way down. See, a funky heart can even see God's blessings as curses. We can become entitled, think that we are owed something. A a funky heart can even see the fountain of every blessing with skepticism. A non-Christian friend gets a raise. A good thing for someone to get a raise for working hard, and yet, in your heart, you feel like God has robbed you because, you know, God doesn't have enough promotions to give out to everybody. Or maybe another dad gets praised for being a good dad, and you begin thinking about the reasons that you should be praised and weren't praised. It's Father's Day, right? Or maybe you perceive another preacher is getting more attention, and you feel like your wife pays more attention to your dog than to you, and you're trying to work that out. Maybe that's wrong, but you get what I'm saying. Like, how are you jealous of a dog? See, God saves someone you share Christ with. A good thing that you praise God for. And then as you're praising God, you find your heart drifting into, but I've been sharing Christ with my own children and they haven't put their faith in Christ God. And you begin to question the goodness of God in that. I don't know. We can turn even good things into bad things and begin to question whether God is really for his children or whether he really is as good as our friends say he is. See, we see that God appointed a blessing, a loss, and a trial to to teach Jonah in verses 6 to 11 a lesson about his meticulous sovereignty and providence in his life. Each of these things that we see, the plant, the worm, and the wind, all teach us something about God. So second, notice that God appoints all three of these, a plant, a worm, and a wind. See, Jonah is displeased with God's provision. And Jonah sees God's mercy as evil. He calls what God sees as good as evil. Have 
you ever found yourself unhappy with what God has done or what God has said? Maybe you have found yourself looking at the providences of your life as feeling evil or bad. Maybe that's where you're at today. But catch this. We see God's providences strongly present in Jonah. And you'll remember that God appointed that great fish to swallow Jonah whole and save him in 117. Well, here God is appointing the plant, the worm, and the wind. Notice first the plant. The first thing we see here is that God appoints blessings like the plant. Now, last week we saw how self-centered, self-righteous, legalistic, racist, and angry Jonah looks. He doesn't sound like much of a guy that you would want to you know, bring to your parties. He's not the guy that you would want to have fun with. In fact, he looks like a rebel against God. Now, how would you expect God to treat him? I mean, in your vision of who God is, with anger, frustration, condemnation, I mean, didn't he deserve it? I mean, this guy is kind of uh, the epitome of a rebel, and he loves to see others destroyed. But take note here of the way that God does respond. He is so compassionate in the way that he responds to this petty prophet. There is a love and a grace that is shown to him from God that is really unexpected. So notice in verse 6 what it says. It says there, again, the Lord. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah. That it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So do you see the gentleness of God towards this angry prophet? A plant is appointed to come and give shade over Jonah to save him from the discomfort of the sun. This divine gardener raises up a plant in a day to display his kindness to this prophet. Now this word for discomfort is, easy, is interesting. Uh, discomfort, it comes from the same word as evil. And so mercifully, God has raised up this plant to shelter Jonah from the evil effects of the heat upon him. Now, did you catch how meticulous God was in this blessing towards Jonah? The blessing shows up just at the right time, when he needed it, and and in just the the same way that he needed. He needed shade from the heat, so God raised up this perfect plant at the perfect time to provide the perfect shade that Jonah so desired. God specifically met Jonah's need. And Jonah didn't deserve the plant. He didn't work for the plant. The plant was God's grace to Jonah to provide him with mercy. Now, many of us would rather let this angry prophet burn up in the sun as he burned up in his anger. But that is not the way that God met with this prophet. God is compassionate even towards rebellious prophets. See, Jonah couldn't escape God's compassion. But don't miss this. Don't miss Jonah's response. Jonah, when he sees this plant, he is exceedingly glad or happy over this plant. This is a good plant, he says. I like this plant. It is pretty and it protects me. This is a good plant. I love this plant. And when God showed mercy to the great city of Nineveh, God's mercy displeased Jonah exceedingly. Plant makes me exceedingly glad. It's beautiful. Nineveh, exceedingly angry. I don't like them. But when God showed a little mercy to Jonah, God's mercy made Jonah exceedingly glad. See, Jonah took joy over God's mercy when it was directed towards him. And take note, God's providence, 
It means not good, no good comes to us that doesn't filter through the hands of our heavenly Father. God's providence means that there is no good that you have in your life, even the breath in your lungs that you have right now is a gift of the Lord. It comes from Him. It comes through the hands of the Father to you. There is no good gift that comes to you except from your Father in heaven. Nobody has any good that comes from any other place than but from God. That is a profound truth that ought to dictate the way that we view all of creation. It is a power incentive against sin, knowing that there is no way towards good except to the Father of good who is God himself. See, Jonah's heart is funky though. Jonah loves the blessing because of the way it affected him, but it didn't lead to an adoration of God in his character. In fact, this gourd became Jonah's God. His affections were set on the blessing rather than the blesser. It was, it's kind of like the sugar distracted him from his sugar daddy, right? Like he was distracted from the father from whom the source of good came. And he was satisfied and in love with the thing itself that the father had given him because it made him happy and that's all he wanted. No good gift comes to us that doesn't flow through the hands of our heavenly father. He is the true good who gives all good things. Now here's where idolatry happens. It's when we don't trace back our blessings that are all around us back to God and give him praise for it. Good things can become an occasion of idolatry when we don't see them as instruments meant to lead us back to the Redeemer. I was reminded of this in a a quote by C.S. Lewis, who has a bad theology in a lot of ways, but he talks about how adoration is better than gratitude in a way that I found super helpful. He said, gratitude exclaims, how good of God to give me this. How good of him to give me this. But adoration says, what must be the quality of that being whose far off and momentary coruscations are like this? One's mind runs back up the sunbeam to the sun. In other words, all of those blessings are like beams of the sun that are flashing down on us. And we aren't meant to worship the beam, but actually to trace that beam back up to the source, which is God, who is the sun. He is the source of all of these delights. See, if we aren't regularly tracing back the blessings of God that he sends us to the hand of God that they are coming from, we will become angry and self-centered because we become idolaters. See, idolaters are skeptical of God's good gifts. Any of you experienced the goodness of God and immediately started wondering, what is God trying to do to trick me here? Or what bad am I going to have to pay for this great good that God has sent me? Is that a misunderstanding of the nature of the goodness of God? I mean, does God really need to yin and yang? Does he really need like karma to like make up for bad with some good? Like, that's not the God of the Bible. Idolaters love blessings but don't praise God. They delight in the things, the objects of God's goodness towards them, and they forget all about God because they don't care about God. They just want God's stuff. Idolaters are skeptical of God's good gifts. They don't praise God, but they also think they earn God's blessings with their works rather than receiving them because of God's character. You wonder if Jonah was thinking at the end of the day, Man, I have done you a solid God. I walked a three days journey through Nineveh, those wicked people. 
Like it was a horrible thing. And I got to the end, I'm sitting here, and at the end of the day, you gave me shade because I earned it. And yet, what we find in the Bible is, is that every good gift that comes to us is from the grace of God that we are deserving of nothing. But maybe this morning you're thinking that you have in some ways earned God's good gifts. Maybe that's the reason that you feel like God has cheated you because he owes you something that you have not been given. That's idolatry. See, idolaters worship gourds, not God. Charles Spurgeon in this text, he says this. He says, don't let your gourd be your God, but let your gourd lead you to your God. And when your comforts become your idols, they work your ruin. But when they make us bless God for them, then they become messengers from God which help toward our growth in grace. There's a kind of spiritual maturity that comes as we actually trace back those beams of light, those gourds, to God. Seeing Him as the good provider of all of those things. God matures us in that, showing us that He is the source of every good, that there is nowhere else to go but Him. See, prayers of praise are one of those things that we really struggle with in praising God for His character. Prayers of confession are easy. Why is that? It's because we struggle to praise God for His character. We struggle to make much of Him and His goodness. But that's why we praise God every Sunday. Making much of the character of God and his attributes. But you can hardly miss the ironic edge of this scene. Jonah evaluates the actions of God based upon how they affect him personally in the moment. See, Jonah is self-interested and he's short-sighted. God appoints a worm next to help continue this lesson. Notice, uh, second, that God appoints losses like the worm. So not only does God send blessings, God also, he sends losses like the worms. Take note that before the sun rises, it's not even a day, God has already appointed a worm or, uh, to come and to continue God's lesson to Jonah's heart. This emphasizes, I believe, how quickly our temporal blessings can fade in comparison to our eternal God. Notice what he says in verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Now take note that the plant doesn't even last a day. As the sun rises... The worm attacks, and God appointed the worm in the same way that he appointed the plant, but with vastly different outcomes. See, this worm, or or a maggot, is used, and I hate that word, is used in the Bible as an instrument of God's disfavor. We see that in Deuteronomy 28.39. A worm is not considered to be a happy creature that spreads joy. Uh, It's also used elsewhere as uh, the kind of bug or, or insect that... Uh, consumes human remains in Isaiah 14.11 and Isaiah 66.24. Not pleasant images. But here the worm is attacking this plant that Jonah loves for the shelter that it provides him. The plant brought mercy to Jonah and made him glad. But the worm, the worm attacked the plant that Jonah loved and killed the plant, causing a great loss. See, blessings should build dependence, not independence. Blessings ought to cause Dependence, not independence. This world is broken and sin-laden. I don't know if you've noticed that. If you've not experienced losses and suffering, uh, they are likely to come soon. The world is full of worms. Worms that eat away the joys that God brings us. But I want you to take courage because God is sovereign over the worms too. God is sovereign over the worms too. It's not an accident 
It's not something that God has allowed, uh, that is not allowed, that is like slipped by God. God's attention is on us. There's no thing that comes to us except through his hands. And God's providence sends worms. You'll remember Satan in Job. And Job is only allowed to take from Job what God permitted. And God allowed him to take much, but it was never in any way free of the sovereign rule and reign of God. See, John Sanders would say that God was surprised at Job's losses, but the Bible says that God is never surprised. Take note of how quickly we can lose the blessings of this life and so often through no fault of our own. You've probably noticed this. You can lose husbands, wives, children, jobs, homes, health, reputation in a moment. All can be lost in a moment, leaving us with nothing but God. Like the manna that God filled the Israel, uh, like the manna that God fed the Israelites with in the desert, it rots by noon because God wants to teach His children to be dependent on Him and Him alone. Don't grow dependent on God's past or present blessings. Depend on your God. You will likely experience great loss. What will your heart do when the great losses come? Seek God daily in prayer. Seek God in His Word. Seek God with his people. You need to seek God and be dependent on God daily. You need him more than you know. His blessings ought to push us into dependence upon him. Horatio Spafford experienced great loss. Great loss much like John Sanders. Maybe even more so in that he lost his children. In fact, he was a successful businessman in Chicago who lost everything in a great fire. The great Chicago fire. And then he decided to send his family to Europe to help encourage them after this great loss. They lost everything they owned. And so his wife took his daughters and they were going to meet up in Europe. And his wife sent back a letter after discovering that this ship had actually hit another ship and been submerged in water. So many died. And his wife responded with a letter that said that she alone survived the great sinking ship. He was moved to write just like St. John Sanders was moved to write. One loss helped a man to write something. Another loss led a man to write something else. Sanders wrote about God not being in control because it was not well with his soul. We find that Spafford actually wrote what became a hymn, It is well with my soul. How could it be well with his soul when he loses his three daughters to this sinking ship? Well, here's what he says. When peace like a river attendeth my way. This inspired by his great loss. When sorrows like sea billows roll. Sea billows, like the ones that rolled over his daughter. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. The only heart that can sing that is a heart that knows that God is sovereign over all things and good and compassionate and high above him. This is a man who trusts God. See, God's providence ought to give us confidence that he really is working all things together for good and for the good of his people, even the losses that don't make sense. Similarly, God is not only sovereign over the great losses of this life, the losses that he is at work in, working for us. Losses that aren't meant to make us feel like we understand God, but Losses that, are make a, that make us understand that we need to trust an altogether wise God that knows better than we do. Similarly, God is over the wind-like trials that come our way. 
in verse 8. Notice that he says, when the sun rose, when the sun rose, so just as things are heating up, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than live. Now, some speculate that God appointed this scorching east wind to blow over and destroy the tent that Jonah created for himself. Remember that tent, that booth that he created? The wind, some say, was blowing that away along with wiping away the remains of this plant. So that both Jonah's man-made efforts to protect himself and this God-appointed plant left him in a moment completely vulnerable to the hot desert sun to the point that Jonah was faint. Now we know that God's teaching Jonah something about his anger in verses 1 to 4. Jonah's angry. That's where we started. Because here again, notice that he's quoting from verses 1 to 4, where Jonah again says, and now because of the plant, first it was because of the salvation of Nineveh, but here because of the plant, it is better for me to die than to live. That's his assessment yet again. See, Jonah is suffering to the point that he'd rather die than live. It was God's mercy toward the Ninevites that burned him up in verse 3, causing him to say, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to live than to die. And here he says again, because of this plant, it is better for me to live than to die. Sinclair Ferguson writes in his commentary, God uses numerous trials of providence to bring Jonah's heart out of his lips. Your life is a story written by God. Make sure you reflect on your life and how you are responding to the tragedies of life. This is a direct artery to your heart. And how you respond to the death of a child or the loss of a job or a wife who gets cancer is going to tell you a lot about where your treasures are. And don't miss this. Tragedies can make us bitter or sweet, and they tell us where we're trusting. Some people struggle to get over losses and trials because they struggle to get their hearts to trust that God really is enough. And I'm not saying that's an easy thing. They struggle to believe that the God who took this person, this job, this house, this health, could really still be good and sovereign. They struggle to trust that God can be at work even in the losses and trials of this life in the same way that he is at work in the Bible. See, losses and trials take more faith than blessings do. Our automatic response to scoring a touchdown and winning the game is, praise God, thank you, Lord, for your help, right? How many times have you heard that? How many times do you hear someone break a leg and immediately say, praise God, I was so needing this. Like, that does not often happen. That's not our reflex response. Our reflex response to blessing is praise God. Our reflex response to losses and trials is where's God? And the answer of Jonah is the same place he was in the blessing. Right here. Right now. Working all things together for your good. Bad things. Good things. Blessings. Trials. Losses. All those things. All the things I'm working towards your good and for the glory of my name. See, God says he's at work in all of these things, but God wants to teach Jonah something about his heart for Nineveh here in verses 9 to 11. Uh, Notice third, the God of boundless sovereignty. The God of boundless sovereignty has a right to show compassion on whom he will. This is beautiful. God says, because I am boundlessly sovereign, sovereign over all, I can show mercy and grace and compassion to who I will. 
I don't answer to anyone for this. Notice what he says in verse 9. It says, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and, much cast, and also much cattle? See, God has a much greater reason to show compassion than Jonah has to be angry. To be clear, God has a greater right to show pity or compassion on Nineveh than Jonah has to show compassion on his plant. He gives a list of reasons. Uh, You'll notice first that God sovereignly takes credit for creating and raising up the city of Nineveh as a people just as he did the plant. Did you catch that? This is a great people. A great people that I raised up, that I created. There's not a person that has been created that I did not create in my image for my glory. They are mine. Second, notice he says that the city is great in the eyes of the Lord for the, purpose, the purposes of his mercy being put on display. This is a great city. Not just for their number, but for the, the way that God intends to use this city to make much of his name and his glory on display. This city is an ancient city. A city that was mentioned in Genesis 11. One of these ancient cities that has existed and been in existence, and here we find it again. In other words, this city is an instrument through which God would display his divine mercy. God isn't just asking Jonah to be patient on Nineveh. Consider the centuries that God endured their sin to display his compassion on them. You think you're patient, Jonah, waiting on their sins against you. Just consider The many years, the many people have been sinful against me for this moment where I can make a display of my compassion amongst a historically wicked people. This is about my glory being made known. You know, this reminds me a little bit of Trinity Bible Church. In this sense, we are all, according to the word of God, sinners and rebels saved by the grace of God. We were all once in darkness and rescued into the marvelous light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We were, in, we were dead in our trespasses and he brought us to life so that we have hope and not just a hope for a future, but an eternal future. We were a hopeless people. We are all rebels left to ourselves. Every one of us has been rescued out of darkness and God drug us, drug you kicking and screaming into the light, delivering us from death to life that he might make a profound display of his mercy to all of creation. That's what we're told in Ephesians 3.10, that God has broken down the wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles to create a new people through whom he would make a powerful display of the power of the gospel amongst not just the nations, but actually into the realm of heavenly beings, angels and demons who are looking down upon the local church with spellbound wonder at the power of God on display. And what power is it that's being displayed? His compassion and mercy. Trinity Bible Church is an emissary of God that displays the mercy of God. That's what we declare a compassionate God who has shown mercy on us. We did not deserve it. We did not earn it. But God is good and rich in mercy. Now, why did he do that? That he might be glorified. And isn't he worthy of all glory? Is he not? Is not our God who has shown mercy and compassion on us worthy of all glory? Does that not stir our souls about the greatness of our God? There is none like our God. 
Third, take note of the sheer number of people that took God's attention. It was 120,000 who did not know their left hand from the right. Now, this is far larger than Israel in this day. They might have numbered somewhere, uh, Sasson, one commentator says, maybe they were 25,000 at this time. Much larger people. Uh, Nineveh could have been over 300,000 in its heyday. So the number simply means this 120,000. I don't think that like Jonah ran around counting them or, or like God was trying to say this is a specific number. I think 120,000 was this massive number that was like beyond counting. Like this is a, 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 a numerous people that are before me. Why would they not catch my attention so large in comparison to little Israel? Little Israel. Think about this. Not knowing left and right, some places speaks of children. Children who are not old enough yet to know their right hand from their left. But here I think it's speaking of all of Nineveh. Either way. But the point seems to be that God has compassion on so many souls who do not know right from wrong along with their animals. Animals were senseless beasts who didn't obviously know the the difference between right and left. So there might be a sense in which these people don't know any better. They don't know any better than the animals. They haven't been taught. They haven't received the good things of God. You know, in some way, these people look like the animals and that they're senseless of God's will. And, and God is saying that he has more right to be compassionate towards Nineveh than Jonah does the plant. Uh, one commentator, S.H. Blank, writes this. Nowhere in the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, do the personhood of God and his entanglement in the human situation stand more clearly revealed. A man's troubles are matched and dwarfed by God's own hurt. God's providentially moved to save Nineveh because catch this, he loved Nineveh far more than Jonah loved this plant. That's the heart of God compared to the heart of Jonah. Now this should have been indicting in a couple of ways, I believe, to Jeroboam II and Israel and Jonah who lived, this people lived in idolatry doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Just think about this. It would have been indicting first because they knew their right hand from their left. They should have. God gave them the law and his covenant. They should know clearly who God is and how to please him and what is right and what is wrong because he said, I want you to image me to the nations. And yet they did not repent and believe in God, repenting of their evil deeds. And second, because if God loved Nineveh, if he showed compassion towards Nineveh, whom he didn't call his people. How much more should Jonah and Jeroboam and Israel be melted by the largesse of compassion God would have shown towards his chosen people? They should be absolutely humbled by the mercy that was shown to wicked sinners and drawn towards seeking that God who if he'll forgive them, what would he do for us? And yet they did not humble themselves. They did not repent. They did not turn to God. You know, in this, I want to close with two thoughts on God's providence and compassion. The first is this. The God of providence is compassionate. Sovereign God is also the compassionate God. John Calvin, writing on this, says, the purpose of the providence of God is to renew our remembrance of God's fatherly love towards us. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to encourage us knowing that we have a heavenly Father who is out to do good for us. In fact, John 3.16, you'll remember, says this of the character of God, the sovereign God and His compassion. He says, For God so loved the world 
That's a, a word that speaks of uh, basically everyone living on planet earth, right? That he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The compassion of God to save sinners. Now think about that. God gave his only unique son because of his love for the world. The God who is sovereign over your life is also loving and compassionate. This is God's impulse towards self-centered, self-righteous, legalistic, racist, who repent and believe the gospel. God loved people like that so much that he gave his son for them. I don't know about you. I don't know that I would give my son for a good person. And none of my sons are perfect. And yet, God gave his eternal perfect son to come and lay down his life for us. To take the just penalty of wrath that we deserved. So that we might be forgiven and become not just enemies of God, but even better than that, children of the living God. So that he might treat us in every way as a father who loves us, who cares for us, who has compassion on us. See, this word that describes a sacrifice, this, this giving, God so loved the world that he gave his son, is a word that speaks of the sacrifice. The sacrifice that the father made of his son for us on the cross. See, God's heart really did bleed for rebels at the cross. Here's another way I know this is true. Jesus came telling us that he who sees the father sees the son. See, Jesus is our compassionate, sovereign God providentially caring for us. How do I know that? Well, Colossians 15, 1 to 17 tells us this. Now, when I was preaching a series on feelings, I read B.B. Warfield's work on the emotional life of our Lord. It's a great work. Uh, He says a lot of interesting stuff. One thing is he mentioned that Jesus never laughed. Just interesting, like not a jokester. Um, But instead, he really was seen as the man of sorrows who faced many difficult things. But Warfield also notes that the motion that's most attributed to Jesus is actually compassion. Jesus had compassion on sinners, on the sick, on Gentiles, even on his enemies. And Jesus is the guy who cried from the cross, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is the man who stooped to wash the feet of of Judas, knowing that he would betray him and hand him over to be crucified. Jesus came to show us the Father, and the Father is compassionate if Jesus is true to form, and he is. See, his providence displays his character, his compassion. But even more than this, Paul tells us every event of our lives runs through not just the hand of the Father, but the very hand of Jesus. Do you remember this in Colossians 1? Don't miss this. God's providence runs through God's right hand, Jesus. He says in Colossians 1, 15 to 17 this. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Still speaking about Jesus, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Catch this, all things were created through him and for him. In verse 17 about Jesus, and he is before all things and catch this, in him all things hold together. Jesus isn't just a man, he's the God man. If Jesus were to let this stuff go, this stuff goes away. He is sovereign over all things, over all experiences in our life. There is no event that happens that Jesus is not reigning over. That is not the kind of Jesus maybe that you've thought about in the past. But here's the beauty of this. You can trust God when life brings blessing, 
losses or trials because Jesus shed his blood for you and he now sustains you. That's the same Savior that is your sovereign Lord. Now here's what this means if you're a non-Christian here today. Don't refuse the compassion of God in the face of Jesus Christ like Judas did. You might remember that Judas later went and he didn't only say that it would be better for me to die. He actually committed suicide after he sold Jesus out. Why? Because when he sold Jesus out, he rejected him. He discovered that this world had nothing for him. Jesus was his only hope. Life wasn't worth living without Jesus. But Jesus desires good things for us. He wants a better life for us, an eternal hope for us. And he has come that we might have that eternal life. And if you have not turned from your sin to living for Jesus who died on a cross for you, that Savior who still lives to sustain his people, I want to invite you just to to do that today. Put your faith in Christ. I'm going to be here afterwards. I'd love to talk to you about that. We have tons of people here who would love nothing more than to show you what it looks like to come to faith in Christ, your good king. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray.